0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology and Society. Welcome and thanks very, very much for joining us today. Now I'm really excited to share this interview with you because I'm really excited to share this book with you. I just spoke with Anna Tsing about her new book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. This came out with Princeton University Press in 2015, and it's really, really fabulous. It's a book that takes as its case study and kind of playground the picking, selling, consuming, understanding, historicizing of, noticing of matsutake mushrooms in many, many different spaces um, and kinds of contexts really around the globe, and you'll hear about that a little bit um, in the hour to come. As it does that, the book really gives us a way to think toward and to think with the importance of kinds of practices that really open up new ways of living, of inhabiting the world and helping to make it. And and I'm not hyperbolizing there. It really, really does, for me as a reader, have those broader implications. Just tremendously um, broad implications here in really, really important ways. So you'll hear us in the next hour talk about the importance of an art of noticing and noticing kind of with your whole body and your whole self the importance of curiosity, um, of thinking about and, and thinking with and helping to make academic and scholarly work into a playground. Um, the importance of collaboration, um, the importance of um, issues of scale, um, of uh, assemblage, of multi-species worlds. There's so much going on here. It rethinks what history could be. It rethinks what capitalism could be and where it could be. It rethinks notions of freedom and all in the body of a mushroom. So I hope you enjoy. Um, as I've mentioned, uh, it's really a fabulous book and Really, 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 um, if you have the chance or if you can make the chance, get your hands on a copy because there are many, many chapters. Let me see. There are 20 chapters plus some interludes and other things um, that are just these short-ish bursts of ideas and energy and wonderfulness. Um, And so there's so much there to explore and learn from and learn with. Thanks very, very much for listening. Um, I really, as ever, appreciate your support um, and being here with us, and I hope that you enjoy. I really, really, as will probably be obvious, really, really enjoyed this one. Um, Anna was absolutely fabulous, and the book is fabulous. So thanks for listening, and here goes. I'm here today to talk with Anna Tsing about her really amazing new book, The Mushroom at the End of the World. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology and Society, Anna. And thanks both for creating an amazing book that I am super excited to talk with you about and to um, share with other people and also for making time to talk with me today. Welcome to the channel. Thank you, so let's start as is um kind of traditional for the channel by talking a little bit about how you came to the field, kind of broadly construed. What um brought you to anthropology, and how did you kind of come to academic anthropology as a as a practice and as your profession?
1: Uh, when I went to college, I'd never heard of anthropology, <laughs> and I took an amazing course. Uh, in introduction to Anthropology has a distribution requirement, um, not because I thought it was my special interest. And it had everything in it from human evolution to the structure of language to culture and politics around the world. And in fact, the professor uh, said something like, anthropology is the study of politically unimportant people, which impressed me a lot. And Uh, I took a few more anthropology courses and indeed I thought, oh, anthropology is the study of everything. And for a person who's curious, how could you resist the chance to study everything and its connections? So that's great. And
0: curiosity and the kind of um, the importance of curiosity, right, to making the kinds of worlds that we might want to explore and live in is actually very much a theme, uh, at least for me and my experience as a reader of the book. So we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about curiosity um, in the hour to come. So the book that we're talking about today focuses very specifically and very broadly on a particular mushroom on Matsutake mushroom and the worlds that Matsutake mushrooms create. How did you come to this particular focus? Um, And how did you come to decide to write a monograph on this particular mushroom?
1: Perhaps I'm about to tell a similar story about how life, uh, develops through the contingencies, the encounters that you have. And it's been a theme that I've written about too. So it's it's probably okay to tell my own story that way. I had not heard of Matsutake. I was looking for a commodity chain that had a lot of cultural richness in it. And uh, by chance, I ran into a California mycologist, David Aurora, who told me about the Matsutake. And he originally said there the buyers will spend a lot of time by the side of the road, uh, because they don't open their tents until evening. They'd have a lot of time to talk to you. And so I, I went up there to this place that no one had heard of. Uh and it was so completely fascinating, not just in terms of the political economy, but also in terms of the ecology, I just couldn't stop. Indeed, I should tell one story about that, which is I was so fascinated after my first month of doing a little research there that I contacted five of my colleagues and who worked in different parts of the world that were relevant to Matsunake. I said, let's do a group project. Uh, Maybe it'll only take us three months. You won't have to interrupt your ordinary work very much to do this. And we, uh, much to my surprise, I thought maybe one person would come and talk to me, but every single one of them jumped at the chance to join What became the Matsuke World's Research Group, and my idea for three months. That was uh, more than 10 years ago now. So, everyone has been to continue to be fascinated by this mushroom and all of the worlds that it opens up for us.
0: I had a chance to interview Michael Hathaway about his previous book, um, who, you know, was the first person from whom I heard about this research group and um, recently talked with Evan Kirksey about his book. And so, um, I was really excited to also see you talking about this early on in the book. Um, so the, you talk here early on in the book about the importance of scholarly collaboration to forming this project, um, to helping it have the shape that it does, and specifically collaboration with this Matsutake Worlds research group. Um, you describe this as a, a way of exploring, in, in the words of the book, an anthropology of always-in-process collaboration. You talk about the importance of research categories developing with the research, not before it. And we learned that there's actually two. Um, there are two more books to come from two other members of the group. Um, as a way to bring us into the book and into the project, for you, what were some of the most important collaborative practices that came out of this Masataki World's research group that were formative in giving the book the shape and the research the shape that it has, and that others perhaps might um, take on for themselves as kinds of research practices?
1: Let me say one founding idea was to not move too fast. I think people rush into their books and lose lots of opportunities. And we decided to take our time. And that's what it has taken us a rather long time. But as a result, we've gotten to do a rather unusual Uh, practices that have enriched not just my research, but everyone in the teams, I think, Uh, including we've had the chance to do research together. Uh, Different team members have different regional specialties. So Michael Hathaway, who you mentioned, has worked on forests in Kunming throughout his career and was able to uh, bring both myself and Shiho Satsuka to see some of those forests. And we asked different questions perhaps than he would have asked. Um, And uh, that was a very exciting uh, chance to work with someone, which has not been an ordinary practice in social and cultural anthropology. Similarly, we worked together in Japan, uh, where because I don't have Japanese language skills, I really would not have been able to do anything important, except that several members of the team uh, not just Shiho Satsuka, but Liba Fair and Miyako Inoue uh, are uh, scholars of Japan and were able to carry various members of the team at different points over the years into scenes that we would never, ever have been able to work on separately, but that together we learned something um, that that emerged from the research encounter, not just of the different, not just of the Uh, People that we were talking to, but also among the researchers ourselves.
0: So, as we come into the book, I'll just say um, very, very briefly a little bit about the fieldwork that produced this. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you and you described this early on that this is based on fieldwork during the Matsutake season between 2004 and 2011 in a range of places in the U.S., in Japan, Canada, China, Finland. Um, And you talk about the importance of interviews with Matsutake traders, with scientists, with foresters in those places, and also elsewhere in Turkey, in Denmark, in Sweden. Um, so So we'll get into the kind of fruits of these travels in a moment. But to get into it, um, we're going to be following a map of a very, very different kind of structure than one typically finds in an academic monograph, right? So usually, and we were talking Mm. about this a little bit before um, we started recording, usually you find, you know, four to seven chapters and they're sort of, they're doing a particular kind of work. The chapters here are very different. They're very short. And you refer to the structure of the book as a riot of short chapters. So can you talk about the structure of the book and the kind of work that that does to support the kind of work you're doing um, in terms of your argument, and your story.
1: The chapter structure uh, came out of, of, of a sort of meditation on who I wanted to read the book. And I was trying to write a book that maybe uh, could be read by students and scholars, but also by people who were interested in these topics who were not part of the university. And so the short chapter idea originally came from there. Also turned out to be lots of fun to write in short chapters, even though the, the problems for a scholar are that it's very hard to get the argument and the uh, data all into the same chapter. But uh, it's also that Matsutake as a topic was so productive in terms of my thinking that uh, the excitement of it made me unable to just have four or five chapters. I wanted to tell people about so many exciting things, even if I had to do just a burst of it. And um, I hope it works. I try to create narrative arcs where, as in a novel, you try and, follow the plot across chapters rather than each chapter being a self-contained unit.
0: It works really well, um, at least from my perspective. And that sense of excitement and that sense of bursting really comes through um, in the movement, as you mentioned it, from chapter to chapter to interlude and the photographs and everything. It's really great. So let's get into it. Let's okay. get into it. Um, so you bring us into a prologue that I'll just kind of briefly um, allude to for listeners so that they can have a sense of prologue experience as well. Um, the, the prologue starts, what do you do when your world starts to fall apart? You say you go for a walk. And if you're really lucky, you find mushrooms. In this prologue, um, you're introducing some of the concepts that we'll return to um, that really set the stage for, uh, for the book, right? The idea of precarity, um, the the importance of the notion of living in our messes, the smell of the matsutake as a kind of autumn aroma, um, the ways that matsutake show a kind of collaborative survival, um, ways of thinking capitalism and, and what capitalism might look like um, in the context that matsutake, uh, uh, in the context in which matsutake emerge. Okay, and this brings us into the first part of the book. What's left? Now, in the first, uh, as you mentioned, the chapters kind of flow into each other. So we're also going to kind of flow among the chapters and exploring them. One of the important um, concepts that comes up early on in this first part of part one is the idea of multi-species worlds and assemblages. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You talk about the importance of um, of assemblages and of elements of assemblages as, in the words of the book, contaminated and unstable. Assemblages also refuse to scale up smoothly. So let's explore assemblages um, in these terms and and kind of open that up a little bit. The book is going to argue that uh, in the words of the second chapter, Staying alive requires livable collaborations. Collaboration means working across difference, which leads to contamination. Without collaborations, we all die. So um, can you open up for us a little bit um, for you? Uh, what's the importance here of contamination? Um, What do we need to understand about the relationship of contamination to collaboration as we try to start thinking with you about and with assemblages in this book?
1: Well, it may be useful to know that the working title for the book for many years was living in ruins Mm -hmm. that the one of the, uh, conundrums that I wanted to explore through this book was what do we do about the fact that we live on a in a contaminated landscape, so on a damaged planet, and uh, survival is not just one against all, as it often is portrayed in popular American um, culture, but instead really involves staying alive with other humans and other uh kinds of living beings and with our water and air and other um, non-living parts of the world that, you know, we forget that without plants, we wouldn't have any oxygen to breathe. Without intestinal bacteria, we wouldn't be able to digest our food. And without our friends and neighbors, we wouldn't be able to do the simplest kinds of things so that the Depictions of survival that you can read in any kind of popular book or see in the movies all the time, which always has to do with people fighting off their neighbors for the last resources. That that's not what it's about at all. That if we are going to be in a condition of living in ruins, we have to figure out how to hold on to the entanglements that have allowed uh, livability for us and our companion species.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the ways that we hold on to those entanglements is by practicing an art of noticing. So this comes up early here in the book, but it's something that stays with us throughout our encounter with and our adventure with the book. So can you talk about the importance of noticing? What does that mean for you and what's important for us to notice about noticing in order to appreciate um, what's happening here in the book in terms of noticing?
1: Well, it, perhaps one way of seeing it is to <clears throat> is to consider the ways that noticing has been blocked that we have been asked to turn our attention to a particular channel, and one of those has to do with what's ahead. That a particular. 20th century understandings of moving forward had us look at particular things, industrial developments, new technologies, uh, particular script for what was involved in moving forward. And so uh, we were discouraged from looking around. Now that uh, in- terms of both economy and ecology, that looking forward has proved much more troublesome than 20th century thinkers imagined. Looking around is what we're going to have to do to appreciate all those kinds of uh, different kinds of time, uh, different entanglements, in which we've been involved all the time, but which we've been asked not to notice. and And a good example has to do with the biologies that we're involved with, that the 20th century thinkers uh, showed us organisms working one at a time. And just that notion of survival that I was criticizing before, one against all. But uh, contemporary biologists have gotten more and more uh, concerned about how entanglements across species turn out to be the basic conditions of our lives that we can't develop as organisms, whether we're humans or other kinds of organisms, without uh, all of the interspecies connections that we have. So that's just one example of uh, the things that we were not noticing that we're going to have to start noticing uh, as a kind of arts of living in a damaged planet.
0: And you mentioned specifically, just to kind of um, uh, reinforce something you, you were just talking about and put it in slightly different terms, re, uh, repeatedly you mentioned the importance of natural history, right, of kind of mm-hmm. revitalizing the, the art of natural history as part of our art of noticing. Um, and noticing is something also um, in the context of the book that we do not just with our eyes, right, but also with our whole bodies. Mm-hmm. We're dancing as we're noticing, we're smelling and learning how to smell as we're noticing we're hearing so noticing is something that's a kind of full body multi sensory experience as it emerges from the book so not only are the elements of assemblages contaminated, as I mentioned before, um, but also just to um, uh, recap what I mentioned before, again you said assemblages refuse to scale up smoothly, and as we move into the third chapter, you bring us into this issue of scale. To learn, uh, we have a problem, as you put it here, with. Scale um, and you turn us to um, an attentiveness to the unscalable, um, thinking about a theory of non scalability. Can you talk a little bit about that? um, The importance of the unscalable, of non scalability, and of the problems with scale in terms of appreciating what's happening
1: with Matsutake and its possibilities. Well, any relationship is non scalable in the sense that you can't just make it bigger without changing it. Uh, That that scalability that I was talking about, which is, you could say, the art of the plantation or of uh, industrial production, where you take a set of things and so simplify them that you can keep adding to them without changing anything. Uh, What that ignores is the importance of encounters and relationships in making us who we are, whether we're plants or whether we're humans. Um, and I was, I, I think uh, back to the question of noticing that we haven't tried to think across uh, these encounters and relationships enough in terms of what it what it takes to live well. Uh, in uh, conditions of, of environmental and political economic challenges.
0: And this idea of thinking across, actually, that you just mentioned, um, this is really, really important. And it really nicely brings us into part two, um, where you also talk about other ways of acting across, being across, thinking across, specifically in terms of translation. So as we move to part two, after progress, salvage accumulation, um, you, are, you help us explore the relevance of and the importance of translations um, on various scales, right? In, in various different um, spaces and, and levels and ways and practices, right? And its relevance to thinking through and rethinking capitalism and salvage capitalism specifically, um, to thinking through freedom to thinking through haunting, to thinking through um, uh, all kinds of ways that these are bound up in the practices of picking mushrooms. So the first chapter in this part, chapter four, explores the supply chain by which Matsutake pickers in Oregon forests are linked with those who eat the mushrooms in Japan. So you bring us into this issue of supply chains and sort of linking up um, people in very, very different spaces and contexts. Doing this reveals that capitalism, in the words of the book, requires acts of translation across sites of difference or across patches. So let's explore those two ideas briefly. Um, Can you talk for us a little bit about the importance of translation? What are these acts of translation? What are some examples of acts of translation? And what are patches? And can you kind of open up that notion for us, the idea of translation across patches?
1: Well, maybe let me start with capitalism. Okay. Um, <laughs> if she, so, in order to get to translation practice, <laughs> of course. if yeah. I may. Of course. I, I, I gave the introduction to a colleague to read, and, she, and her comment was, why do you have to talk about capitalism? Can't you just talk about markets? <laughs> she said, nobody will read your book if you write capitalism in it. Uh, and I think she's wrong. I think there's a revival of interest in capitalism. And part of the reason is we can't understand the structures of inequality on the one hand and the ecological catastrophes on the other without thinking about capitalism as a structural system for transferring uh, wealth to elites uh, through this process I'm calling alienation, through the simplifications in which life worlds are Uh, disrupted, uh, to produce assets. So that's the capitalism part of it. But uh, once you stray into that territory, you confront the stories that people ordinarily tell about capitalism, which all take place uh, as if this was a fait accompli, that everyone already was in this alienated state and that we didn't have to do anything to construct those scenarios of scalability and alienation. I'm arguing that every day capitalism has to do that basic work over and over again of creating these conditions of asset making. And the translation is part of that work, that the, the great thing about thinking with the supply chain, which is just the process in which a particular Goods um, make it from wherever they're procured or made to consumers. That if you if you think about that, all along the way, uh, that product is being transformed, uh, not just physically in terms of its attributes, but also socially, what its relationship to other living beings, other human relations are, and. And I think I've gotten a little abstract there, but my point is that Matsutake actually shows us really nicely a product that starts out as a trophy uh, full of the exuberance of pickers and then becomes a commodity. And then by the time Japanese consumers uh, uh, eat it, it's a gift. It's something that's not usually – nobody goes out to buy matsutake and just stuff themselves with it at home unless they're trying to be really bad. The reason Japanese people buy matsutake is to give to someone, to impress them with the seriousness of the relationship. So matsutake transforms itself along the commodity chain, uh, moving in and out of commodity status. And I'm arguing that maybe capitalism works that way in general.
0: How does the notion of salvage come in here? So specifically salvage capitalism, salvage accumulation, sites of salvage. Can you open up that concept for us as it's motivating what's happening here?
1: Sure. Uh, I think uh, in the 19th century, um, both the availability of labor as people who are ready to work and of natural resources as Stuff that was able to become assets. It was, those things were taken for granted. And so the mechanics of capitalism were often understood, uh, as just, again, how you took these pre-composed parts and put them back together. Uh, I think by now we need to pay attention to the fact that the living world is not just sitting there ready to be assets for us. That every time you uh, dig a hole to create a mine, you create other effects on the landscape that before it was a mine had a living ecology to it. So in that sense, every time you try and get a natural resource, you have to pull it out from uh, some kind of an ecology and the value that's created Is not just created by whatever it is that humans are doing with their machines, but by all the ecological processes that put those things there in the first place. So salvage is just that, is the creation of wealth through things that were made, not by the people looking for the wealth, but by other kinds of processes, whether human or not human.
0: Great. So thinking about this helps us think translation, as we've already talked about a little bit, um, but it also helps us think freedom and understand the ways that freedom, opportunities, practices thereof emerge out of these practices and out of these landscapes. In Chapter 5 and Chapter 6, you look at different kinds of freedom, haunted, and not, or perhaps both of them are haunted, um, that, uh, that we can see if we look closely at a couple of different kinds of practices. The first kind of practice that you bring us into that produces a kind of freedom, as you argue, is a practice called open ticket mushroom buying. What is open ticket mushroom buying in Oregon, and how does that um, help make freedom for the participants
1: well, first, let me say I learned a lot about freedom uh, working in the Oregon mushroom camps. And the first thing I learned is that I didn't know what it was. That I couldn't assume that I knew what it was, and I had to really listen to what they were saying. And different mushroom pickers, because we haven't talked about this yet, but the mushroom pickers come from very different national and ethnic backgrounds. There's uh, some there's white pickers, including quite a large number of white Vietnam veterans. Uh, there's pickers who are refugees from Laos and Cambodia. And those are the most uh, numerous of the pickers in the uh, place that I was watching the Matsutake picking. So I had to listen to what they were saying about freedom because it didn't always uh, follow what my own stereotypes of what counted at freedom. And uh, the scene was haunted in part because Of the irony that so many of these people had suffered the trauma of the U.S. wars in Indochina and the civil wars that followed afterwards, whether they were U.S. veterans on the one hand or veterans and survivors on the other hand from the Southeast Asian countries that were so torn up by these wars. So you get uh, very... Uh, strange confrontations among Southeast Asians and white veterans in the same mushroom patches here. And the freedom they're talking about is in part uh, their struggles uh, against what they saw as communist uh, regimes uh, as uh, anti-freedom in their, in their ideas. So that's one meaning of freedom at the same time, they're, Uh, want to be out there in the woods. Uh, So different pickers had very different stories of what counted as freedom. And it balled up many, many meanings of freedom. And so my first conclusion about freedom is you really have to listen to what people are saying when they use common words like that.
0: Mm -hmm. What is the open, can you say a little bit about the open ticket system? What's what's on there and why is
1: that important to the story? Uh, Yes. uh, So open ticket means, well, well, uh, first, I need to say that the price of Matsutake, much more than any other wild mushrooms sold in the United States, um, uh, ricochets from quite high to quite low. During the period of my research, it got as low as $2 a pound and for the top mushrooms and as high as $60 a pound. And 10 years earlier, it got as high as $600 a pound. So the price uh, roller coasters from high to low – even in a single night, the price per pound might be ten dollars different at one point in the night and another point. And open ticket is the the practice uh, that buyers uh, use to say that if a picker sells his or her mushrooms early in the night, which is to the buyer's advantage, and the price uh, goes up in the same night, the picker can come back and. Uh, take the difference. Uh, So this is a technique to encourage pickers, uh, but maybe it needs to be contextualized a bit in the scene, which is a whole bunch of pickers are out there as independent uh, foragers, all taking their own expenses and their own camping equipment. They're out there in the national forests uh, picking mushrooms. And then all these buyers set up tents by the sides of the road. They're also independent and they sell to uh, what I call bulkers, people who bring the mushrooms together and sell them to exporters, many of which are in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, even though this is in Oregon, uh, and that's just for historical reasons. But in this rather wild scene, the buyers are competing for pickers, the pickers are pushing for higher prices. Uh, one of the meanings of freedom is the ability to sell your mushrooms to anybody you want, uh, for the buyers to sell their mushrooms to anyone they want. So there's a commitment to freedom. Uh, Open ticket is seen by the buyers as a way that the pickers have pushed them to offer better deals, in a sense. Uh, And it gives a sense of the commitments to certain kinds of freedom in the mushroom buying scene.
0: Thank you so much. So there's a lot more going on um, in this part of the book that we won't have a chance to talk about in any detail so that we can kind of get to the woodlands, right? We need to get to the woodlands and the Satoyama woodlands and a and talk about pines. But I just want to mark um, for listeners who are particularly interested in these issues of business um, and buying and selling and um, different ways of construing and thinking capitalism and capitalist practices in these contexts, there's a lot going on. In chapters 7 Uh, 8, 9, and 10 that goes in much more detail than we've had a chance to talk about into um, the idea of Matsutake as, a, as you put it, a capitalist commodity that begins and ends its life as a gift. And we've talked a little bit about that, that talks about salvage rhythms, um, alienation, um, and that looks uh, a little bit in more detail at uh, commodity change and relations between the different spaces in which Matsutake are picked and bought, and sold, and consumed. So there's a lot in there in part two, and listeners who are uh, particularly engaged by these ideas um, will find a lot to chew on in those chapters. But let's move to chapters, or the chapters that are in part three. This is um, a part of the book called Disturbed Beginnings, Unintentional Design, and it's really, really fascinating. Now, as you bring us into this part of the book, you begin by bringing us into Satoyama, woodlands um, and sort of bring us into or help us to start thinking about practices of restoring these woodlands um, and of thinking about what landscapes could be by understanding practices of restoring these woodlands. So you talk about landscapes as products of what you call unintentional design. Since this kind of takes us into this part of the book, and it forms part of the title of this part of the book, it seems like um, it's, a, it's a pretty important uh, idea for us to contend with before we move on. So can you maybe start us off um, in our adventure through this part of the book by talking a little bit about landscapes as unintentional design products? What's important about that for
1: you? Well, the first thing that's important is I think of landscapes as active. I think for a long time people thought of landscapes as a passive backdrop to what humans or maybe even animals were doing. But that the landscape itself is composing and decomposing. It's remaking itself all the time through the actions of all of the life forms as well as the water and air and wind and other things like that. That are there. It's actively being formed, but not always through the intentional um, desires of any of those players, including humans. That one uh, creature makes a dam, like a beaver, and fish uh, come into the water that is created by the dam. That's not even the purpose of the beaver. There is to attract the fish, but the fish come in. So the landscape responds to all of the kinds of, uh, land- of world building activities of all the different, different uh, participants um, and becomes an, a, an active uh, historical agent in the process, but not in ways that any one of the creatures might have predicted.
0: And in fact, you talk in one of the chapters in this part of the book about landscapes um, or landscape itself as the protagonist of an adventure. And the spirit of adventure um, and fun is something that very much emerges from every part of the book and really kind of explodes in ebullience um, in part three and part four. So we're going to keep that with us um, for the rest of our conversation. So as um, we move further into the book, talking about the importance of lots of different participants, as you were just uh, mentioning, we really get a sense of this and its implications in Chapter 12. So as a historian, um, this is, of course, one of my (laughs) favorite chapters, right? There's a chapter called History. Um, And here you take us into forests in Finland and really use this as a space to open up the idea of what history could be if we practice it, practiced it as if it encompassed, as you call, the tracks and traces of non-humans. So what would a history be that really took seriously the clues and the tracks and the traces of non-human actors, of non-humans in this story? And one of the ways that you exemplify what this could look like is by introducing us to pines, um, as uh, pine trees, right. As really important actors in the, in a kind of history. So as a way of opening out this, into this idea of history and what it could be with the non-human, can you talk about pines in this context?
1: Well, pines are great to think with historically because they move at a time scale that we can, uh, experience and also follow along humans in many of our activities but again not as an intentional part most of the time that if you uh, open a road for example somewhere along the verge of the road pine trees are often the first thing that come up or if you let a field go back to forest uh, pines may be the first to come up because they're willing to live in those places with human disturbances and because pines are also the hosts for matsutake mushrooms, it's why matsutake are also following along any times in the tracks, not just of human disturbance, other kinds of disturbance too, but uh, disturbed forests are often pine forests, and that's why you can find matsutake there.
0: So we don't just explore forests in Finland in this part of the book. You also take us, um, especially, or for example, in the next chapter into forests in Japan and in Yunnan. And here we are introduced to peasant forests. So, Anna, what's a peasant forest? And what do we need to understand about peasant forests in Japan and in Yunnan, insofar as they're different or importantly different?
1: Well, these are forests that were very much used as part of uh, small-scale cultivation that In places like Japan, for example, where they didn't use uh, animal manure to fertilize the uh, fields, they brought green manure from the forest. They raked the forest and pulled the leaves and the uh, pine needles and other things and piled it up and created a green manure that was essential for growing rice or other things in peasant fields. They also used it for firewood, for charcoal, for all kinds of non-timber forest products, including matsutake mushrooms, but also fruits and uh, herbs and all kinds of uh, stuff. So peasant forest is one that's being actively used uh, by small-scale cultivators and in the process transformed as to what kind of ecology it might be it's often a more open forest because well uh because the use of things keeps uh gaps in the in the structure of the trees sometimes it's a coppiced forest which just means that it it has a lot of plants that, uh trees that people cut down to use but then they grow back up from their roots
0: now we're going to move from here um, from talking about forests to talking about patches, right? Mm. Go back to this idea of patches. Um, And as we move into the later chapters in this part of the book, we move um, again into a space where we're thinking about translation. We are re-encountering this idea of patches and translation across patches. And interestingly, we're doing this here, um, for example, in chapter 16, as a way of thinking about what science is and what it could be, right? when what, How to integrate science and thinking about and with science into how we understand Matsutake and the worlds that it creates um, and inhabits with us and for us. And actually, chapter 16 and 17 both kind of do this, but let's start with 16. So in 16, um, you ask us to consider science as what you call a translation machine, and you describe translation as something that creates patches of incoherence and incompatibility in science. So translation creates patches of incoherence and incompatibility. Cosmopolitan science, in the words of the chapter, is composed of these patches, and it actually doesn't make it worse. It makes it better. It makes it richer. So can you talk about this idea of um, science as a translation machine and the idea that patches of incoherence and incompatibility actually make this richer and more
1: interesting? Well, I think uh, studies of science tended to, for a long time, just focus on Western science, and it was easy for scholars, just as with the general public, to assume that science was a kind of culturally homogeneous system, in part because many scientists were quite attached to the ideas that a certain kind of cultural rationality uh, guided the system. Um, More recently, studies of non-Western science have grown up, but often they have, they imagine non-Western rationalities as entirely contrasting and a separate world than uh, some Western kind of science. So they're again holding on to this idea that science is a homogeneous system that might contrast with others. I'm arguing instead that, in fact, what makes science so productive is that it's always involved in cultural negotiations and translations, that the way that scientists get their ideas often has to do with questions that come from... Uh, particular cultural legacies, whether they're inside scientific bureaucracies or they come from the general public. And Matsutake science illustrates both of those kinds, that is, coming from inside science institutions and from the general public, that Japanese Matsutake scientists, for example, have learned a lot from uh, small farmers' practices uh, in growing these peasant woodlands that we just talked about, and the kinds of questions that the scientists have brought to their studies, uh, rely on the insights that peasants had about what what uh, kinds of ecologies Matsutake is associated with. Uh, similarly, the uh, the trajectory, for example, of American maztaque. Research which followed forest service interests in how to manage trees, that from inside that kind of bureaucracy of research, particular sets of questions came out. Uh, For example, uh, were pickers uh, ruining the resource that they were supposed to be managing?
0: Now, as we move into the next chapter, you take us further into the possibilities of thinking about and with science and, and sort of rethinking science a little bit by thinking with Matsutake. Um, now, this is going to have to do with the ideas of species, of kinds, of sexual reproduction and spores. And it involves you spilling your tea. <laughs> so that's what I want to ask you. Why did you spill your tea? And can you um, bring us out into the importance of the, um, the, the idea that you were um, thinking about that made you spill your tea?
1: I was interviewing uh, a scientist, uh, Dr. Murata, with Leib Affair, and he explained something about mustache reproduction that just uh, surprised me and startled me, which is that, you, you know, it's very hard to get mushroom spores to germinate. And mustache in particular, they've had a really hard time. He was only able to get them to germinate uh, when he included uh, some of the uh, materials from the mushroom, like the gills or some part of the um, mycelia, the body of the fungus. And Uh, This was a hint to him that there was something interesting about this reproduction going on. And what he found was that a lot of the spores, rather than doing what we'd expect, say, from an animal model of reproduction, which is getting together with another spore uh, of a different mating type and forming a new individual, they do that. But they did something else. They reunited with the parental body, forming a source of genetic variability inside the parental body. So it's as if the parental body then became, uh, well, what's called a mosaic. It had multiple kinds of genetic material inside it, rather than one genetic material individual. These uh, Matsake, uh, you know, organisms had many kinds of individuals inside them. And indeed, you know, ever since that interview, it's turned out that more and more organisms are like that, that they've found that humans have a lot of different genetic material in them, that uh, you have your siblings' genetic material in you, your mother's genetic material in you, all kinds of mixtures uh, that threaten the idea that we're one genetic individual.
0: When you really think about that, it really blows your mind a little <laughs> bit, right? It's yes. Really, really mind-blowing to think of that way. And mushrooms got us there, right? Yes. Got there through mushrooms. So as we move from the kind of getting our minds blown and spilling your tea and the you know, genetic uh, mixtures and individuals within individuals, etc., we move into the fourth part of the book. Um, now, in this part of the book, you're giving us various ways of thinking. With and thinking about what you call latent or latent commons, right? What are latent commons or latent commons? However, you want to pronounce it. Uh,
1: I wanted to, to argue that the kinds of entanglements that Matsutake show us are uh, allies that we don't even notice most of the time and that we need to not just notice but to respect in our. Ideas of what it 's going to take to live uh, that if we don't respect these allies and maybe even build something with them, uh, we're in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. so the latent comments are uh, my attempt to get at these uh, these already entangled collectivities that aren 't political collectivities but could become something.
0: And often these collectivities that you're showing us are really fun, right? Um, and so one of the ones that sounds actually really fun, and you talk about the importance of fun and learning um, and sort of embracing screwing up and making mistakes as part of the process, and that's okay. Um, you talk about this in your discussion of Kyoto's Matsutake Crusaders who are the Matsutake Crusaders and what's important um, in uh, in terms of how you think about this for us to understand about these Crusaders in order to understand some of the larger points that you're making in this part of the
1: book? Um, the Crusaders are trying to revitalize those peasant forests uh, that had a particular ecology. And like other... Um, Folks in Japan who want to revitalize these forests, they argue that there's a particular kind of biodiversity there that's being lost as the forests are invaded by other kinds of plants and are abandoned by farmers due to urbanization. But they gather everyone from students and housewives, retired people, uh, people with jobs who are out there for the weekend to come and work on revitalizing forests. And they make it. A learning experience, they bring kids and old people, uh, and it becomes a way to reconnect with the landscapes around them.
0: So we meet these um, crusaders, right? These sort of citizen groups. In this mm-hmm. part of the book, who are having fun. And again, they're sort of making mistakes and learning from them and embracing that. But we also, as we move forward, meet a different kind of person. And this is um, the kind of person you call a Matsutake boss this is um, a kind of person that we meet in the context of contemporary Yunnan. And these are um, bosses of Matsutake who become trusted and admired figures, but occupy a very different space in the kind of power relations that we've been talking about. So
1: who are the Matsutake bosses? Well, uh, first of all, the boss is an incredibly admired figure in Yunnan and almost everybody we talked to wanted to be a boss, that there was a sense that being a boss that is an entrepreneur who also has some other people uh, following them around trying to get in their shadow of their entrepreneurship uh, is the contemporary figure I think of success. And so these Matsutake bosses are able to pull together a local scene where they have uh Privileged access to the mushrooms, and then are able to haggle with them in the downstream markets uh, to um, to pull together a small world of private wealth, which is very much admired in the area that I was working.
0: So um, my advice, if you ever, um, as the members of the Matsutake World Research Group, decide to launch a couple of softball teams, (laughs) one of you should call yourselves Matsutake Crusaders and one of you should call yourselves the Matsutake Bosses. So That's just advice. You don't have to pick that up. But I think they would make great names for softball teams. Okay, so as we move um, kind of toward, um, toward the conclusion of our conversation and toward the conclusion of the book, we move toward an ending that's actually not an ending at all. It's You call it an anti-ending, right? The book doesn't um, deliberately ask us to not think about it as a, a proper conclusion because, as you put it um, in Chapter 20, muddling through with others is always in the middle of things, it doesn't properly conclude, and you um, it, there's this wonderful chapter, chapter twenty, that talks through this, um, that introduces us to some more people who are part of these latent commons, um, and that also raises the importance of the idea again of curiosity and of appreciating the deliciousness of life. I love that the deliciousness of life. Um, that's very much stayed with me. But as we move forward um, beyond the anti-ending, right, the lack of a conclusion. We move into um, a part of the book that's, I I think, really, really important for those of us who work in, around, and with academia. So, here um, you're talking about uh, really, you know, how we practice and and embody and inhabit scholarship right now in modern academia. And you talk about the movements that I think a lot of us um, who are. Listeners right now um, who are involved in academia can totally sympathize with and completely identify, um, which is a movement to commodis- commoditize scholarship. Right, every scholarship has become a commodity. You want to push back against that, and you asks us you ask us to think about research insofar as it requires play groups, collaborative clusters, not conjures or congeries of individuals calculating costs. And benefits. What if, you ask here in this last part of the book, we imagined intellectual life as a peasant woodland? So, Anna, as a way of maybe bringing this um, toward its conclusion or toward a, um, a middle, right, an ending middle, can you, can you imagine that for us? What if we did imagine intellectual life as a peasant woodland? For you, what could academia look like if we actually put some of these ideas into practice?
1: Well, two things. Uh, The woodland is meant to be a concrete image that both allows people to see how you can gather different things. So it's not like a plantation, a collective process where everybody has to produce the same thing. And yet it requires cooperation and collaboration to keep it there, to keep it from uh, turning into something else. So that's the model. Uh, But uh, it seems to me that the that when you're dealing with any important uh, scholarly challenge, you might want to have other people to work at, on it, not just in the same way, but in different ways. So I'm involved now in a, a collaboration that comes straight out of the work of this book to bring biologists together uh, with uh, humanists, ecologists of various sorts and humanists and occasional geographer. I mean, geologists geologists and geographers too, uh, but uh, the attempt is to address some of the problems of the Anthropocene, that is the epic of human-created environmental change, Uh, and I'd like it to be that kind of playgroup exactly, where people use different approaches, but we can work together to figure out what's going on Mm -hmm. through those arts of noticing. What are some concrete
0: ways that others um, who are not right now working in, in the Matsutake Worlds Research Group or the research group you just described mm. might um, create these spaces um, that accommodate and foster play? Like what, what can we do concretely um, based on your experience in really successfully making this happen to make this happen elsewhere?
1: I think, uh, collaborative research turns out to be a lot of fun Mm -hmm. and uh, you have to work really hard against the academic assessment system to try and build into it a chance for people to have their own careers. So that's uh, absolutely essential and part of why we decided to work rather slowly to give everyone in the group a chance to work for their own tenure, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's no reason not to turn uh, the most exciting research problems into things that you can work together with colleagues on. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's hope that this conversation, um, and in smaller, big ways can inspire more of us. Um, and the book definitely, definitely does that to work in this way and in the spirit of play and in the spirit of collaboration and maybe push back a little bit at this, um, current system that commoditizes scholarship, um, and kind of positions us as Um, individuals competing and calculating. So I think this is really, really inspiring. Um, Thank you so much. And I hope again, that listeners will go to the book because it's um, just full of inspiration like this in all kinds of ways. So, Anna, now that we're at the end, um, of course, or at, at a sort of end, I ha- kind of hesitate after reading the book, right, of the anti-ending to position this as an end, but, um, you know, for, for what it's worth, there's a lot that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? There's a ton of stuff in the book um, that we that we didn't have a chance to touch on. Is there anything in, sp- in particular, anything specific um, that we didn't have a chance to talk on, to talk about, um, to talk on, to talk around, to talk with, um, but that you'd like to mention
1: for listeners? Listeners. i think uh in listening to myself talk with you i let myself get too abstract there's a lot of the book that's trying to tell stories that the, the for re- listeners who might want to try and read a good story i'm real there's lots of people in there telling their stories there's even plants uh with stories and so i hope uh you're not discouraged by the abstraction of our conversation and turn to the book for some real storytelling. Sorry, I do that to people. (laughs)
0: That's that's part of what I do. Yes, there's lots of amazing stories in the book. So now that um, the book is out and congratulations on that, what's next for you? What are you working on that's currently inspiring you? Like you've said already a little bit about this new collaborative group, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah.
1: So that's one of the things is this collaborative group to see if we can go farther with against that great divide uh, that separated the natural sciences and the humanities for so long and was part of that 20th century, not noticing. Uh, So that's a, a big project that I'm very excited about is also a play group. Uh, I'll mention one other thing because it comes directly from the book that I had thought a lot about how by picking Matsutake in particular, I was able to show fungi and humans working together towards livable landscape. But if I had picked a different fungus, it might not have worked out that way. And there's a lot of fungi that are... In fact, remade and encouraged, not on purpose, back to this unintentional design idea we talked about. That uh, that particularly plantation forms, including the industrialization of the plant nursery trade, create new virulence among kinds of fungi. So I'm doing a little project on killer fungi mm-hmm. because, as a follow-up on this, really helps us understand. I think, uh, or, and I'm looking forward to knowing more, but. Uh, the ways that some of those ecological simplifications have remade the agilities of plants and animals to create unlivability that since I've just been working on, mainly on the livability side, I felt that it would be interesting to take another look at unlivability.
0: Well, that sounds amazing, too, and also gives you another softball team name. So, <laughs> killer fungi. Yes. so on that note, thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for a really inspiring conversation and also just a terrifically inspiring book. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very, very much for joining us and we will see you next time.